So I um, have very strict African parents and in African families, it's all about academics, doing well at school, becoming a lawyer, you know, engineer, accountant or a doctor. And, you know, I, I left school without any A-levels. And at that stage in my life, I knew best. So I tried a couple of courses after leaving school and didn't really stick with anything. So decided to move to the bright lights of London and was really independent as you say, worked at Planet Hollywood, worked at bars, enjoyed myself. But then by the time I was, I think yeah, I was either 20 or 21, I realised that working long hours and having to go home on the night bus was really not me living my best life. This is You'll Be Hearing From My Lawyer a conversation series about women's experiences of making a life at the English Bar. It's an opportunity for us to speak openly and honestly about the things that we, as women and barristers, think about a lot and should probably speak about more often. I'm your host, Jessica Vandermeer. And on this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Neka Akadulu QC. She's only the sixth black female barrister to have been appointed to Queen's Council. And in this episode, she tells me about her extraordinary journey to becoming a criminal barrister. Congratulations on your oh, your, you. your appointment, which is both, oh, I'm sure, a wonderful and amazing personal achievement, but also still historic because you're, yeah, you're the seventh black exactly. woman. Sixth. Sixth or seventh, yeah. How does it work between you and... Well, this is the thing, because Laurie-Ann Power, Queen's Council, who is who is seventh, she was called before me, but she told me that her lucky number is seven. So she wanted to be number seven. So, you know, I don't mind. I don't mind being number six and she's number seven. But I think technically she is number six because she was called before me. But... um yeah, either way, you know, we are six and seven, which, um, you know, in this day and age does seem quite ridiculous that the lumbers are so low. But, um, you know, we've got to we've got to do what we can now to get those numbers up. And what did it mean to you that that day and also the appointment to Queen's Council? I mean, the, the appointment just it was it was incredible. You know, when you sort of first start out at the bar. It's something that, you know, a lot of barristers aspire to be. And you you just don't ever, well, I certainly didn't ever think it would be achievable. Um, not least because, you know, at that time, 2002, I could probably count the number of black female silks on one hand. And so you don't automatically think, right, well, this is going to, this is going to happen to you. So... When it did happen, you know, I was, I was elated. I was elated. It felt like vindication that, you know, I'd worked so hard over the last 20 years and it had been recognised. And um, I also thought it was, you know, really important because 
I think visibility is important. What I've learnt probably the most over the last three months since it was announced that I was being appointed that visibility is so important in terms of showing others, you know, this is achievable. And it has been, you know, it's been lovely sort of receiving messages from, uh, you know, my colleagues, from judges, uh, you know, saying congratulations. But re- what, what's really touched me is the messages I've received from, you know, young members of the bar, female members of the bar and students, you know, of all ethnicities, but particularly black students saying that they've been really inspired by my achievements and my story. And it's really inspired them to pursue a career at the bar. So it's just, you know, it's just, it's, there's all sorts of emotions uh, about my appointment. um, But the the primary one is elation. You know, I was just, <laughs> I was over the moon. And you got to wear the the full bottom wig is what they call it, isn't it? Yeah, that was, that was, um, I mean, that was great. And it wasn't, it wasn't as uncomfortable as I thought it was. I loved wearing it. And by the time, you know, we were sort of halfway through the day, I, I really didn't want to take it off. So, um, you know, we have Silk's Day where we, put on all of that regalia and um you know we have these ceremonies and I just really wanted to have silks week where we can wear it throughout (laughs) the whole week I just I really loved it you know the full bottom wig the breeches which I thought would look ridiculous I really I thought I was you know I wanted to wear a skirt when I you know when I was first sort of pickers you go to Eden Ravenscroft and pick out you know what you're going to wear and you get measured for everything and I was of the view right well I'm you know I'm going to wear the skirt uh, because I don't want to wear those ridiculous breeches, but I know I tried them on. I thought, oh, actually, no, I want to wear these. <laughs> um, so I, I chose the breeches. You have to wear 100 denier black tights. Yeah, and you had some gorgeous buckled shoes with a, a red sole, I saw. That was a lovely treat from my family because, you know, I am a massive fan of an elegant high heel. And so you have the opportunity at Eden Ravenscroft to either buy their shoes, the flat shoes that men and women can wear, or you can take in your own shoes to have the buckle put on them. And, you know, my family bought me these shoes as a congratulation present and, uh, you know, for the purpose of the buckle going on them. Mm. So it was it was like, and you know, I love a splash of colour. And the reason why I mentioned the wig is because you you wrote a great piece in The Times uh, a while ago, I think. Well, thank you. I'm just going to read it because I thought it, you, you put it so interestingly, um, which is that <laughs> on the criminal side, wigs offer an element of anonymity for advocates. Walking into a court building in my pink coat and hair in a top knot, I'm a world away from the person who later strides into court wearing her wig and gown. I've been told by clients, witnesses, and staff that they do not recognize me without the wig, and that is how I like it. And I thought that was thought-provoking because I'd never really considered it from the perspective of being able to create anonymity for yourself, which is quite important, I think, especially in the kind of work that you do, right? Exactly. And it's so strange because you think, well, it's sitting on top of your head, so how can it sort of um anonymize you but but it really does we look so different and it's the same with judges as well 
you see a judge outside of court without their wig and you know and and everything else that they wear and you take a double you know you do a double take because we do look very different and i do look very different um i'm sort of well known for wearing this really bright pink coat to um to court and i you know i walk in i'm usually in converse um pink coat hair you know in a messy bun and then I get into the robing room. I robe up, wig and gown on. And in my view, I look completely different. And that's what clients have said. You know, court staff have said the same thing. And so it does give us this element of anonymity that I really enjoy and really like about our job. And I would be really disappointed if... Um, the wearing of wigs in the Crown Court was abolished because I think it should be it should be a choice for a criminal advocate should they want to to continue to wear them. I just think that that's something that we should maintain. And and as I said, you know, as as a as a black woman, um, you know, like everyone during the pandemic. Uh, you know, my my hair was 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 not as uh, as um, sort of put together as it would be, and you know I had an afro for about uh, sort of seven or eight months, um, and I enjoyed that. But when it came to going back to court full time and going and doing trials, you know my you know I didn't want to have to sort of do my hair every single morning. And so I put it back in braids. It was just the easiest way for me to, you know, I've got so many things to do in the morning already. And so having to, you know, style my hair was was not one of the things I wanted to add to my list. So back in braids uh, and it's easier. And then it makes it, it's, um, you know, my wig fits on my head. Uh, and that's, you know, that's part of my uniform. It's a sit for, for me anyway. It is a symbol of work, years of hard work to you know that that gives me the right to wear that that uniform and I think that's the same for a lot of people and a lot of students that I've spoken to um you know feel exactly the same way that it's it's a symbol of look this is how hard I've worked and as a result I am now entitled to wear this uniform and you know that shouldn't be taken away from those who still want to wear it yeah so I'm I'm one of these people who very rarely now gets to wear their their robes um and even in in the hearings in the high court um or in front of circuit judges the the tendency now is tends to be uh no we can't be bothered well i mean oh, really? that's, that's kind of how it feels you know but yeah um so it's it's very rare for me now but the the times when i do wear it i miss that feeling of it's business time exactly and that's what it is. That, that is the sort of feeling. Yeah, it's business time. That's why I was, you know, it, it, metaphorically, yes, this is like armour because it's probably, it probably feels a lot different if you are just appearing in front of a judge. But when you're in, appearing in front of a jury, it's just a different atmosphere. And um, that, that's, I think that's maybe what 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 makes the difference you know that is an obvious difference in the civil and criminal courts but it's part of you know an armor for me when i'm in front of a jury especially i think i mentioned um you know just doing a rousing closing speech 
in front of a jury at the end of a, a, a case. And I could, you know, as I said in the article, of course I could do that just as well, um, you know, just wearing a nice a nice suit, but I just wouldn't want to. I really wouldn't want to. And so I'm 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 hoping, you know, this sort of this debate about wigs and and um and gown sort of surfaces every now and then. But, you know, I'm I'm just hoping it doesn't reach the stage where we get to where um they are dispensed of because I do think they have I just do think they have a purpose. Growing up where where was home for you? So I was brought up in Hertfordshire. Um, and I remain there. I've got six siblings, sorry, five siblings. So I'm one of six, um, second youngest. And I stayed there until I was 18 and I moved to London and basically lived in London ever since. Yeah. And I think when you were in conversation with the Times the week that you were appointed to Silk, you mentioned, um, it became very clear in that article that you didn't take the so-called traditional path to the bar. I think no. what the, what they've described in, in the first, um, the kind of introduction paragraph is written off as a failure that you, you left school with no A-levels and got pregnant after a holiday romance. <laughs> and then <laughs> they say as well that you, you left St. Edmunds College in, in Hertfordshire after GCSEs and you went to work mm. at Planet Hollywood and other bars and pubs in London. Um, and then at 20, that you responded to an advert for access courses and you, you registered to do legal studies in Tower Hamlets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I um, have very strict African parents. And in African families, it's all about academics, doing well at school, becoming a lawyer, you know, engineer, accountant, or a doctor. And, you know, I, I left school without any A-levels. And at that stage in my life, I knew best. So I tried a couple of courses after leaving school and didn't really stick with anything. So decided to move to the bright lights of London and was really independent as you say, worked at Planet Hollywood, worked at bars, enjoyed myself. But then by the time I was, I think yeah, I was either 20 or 21, I realised that working long hours and having to go home on the night bus was really not me living my best life. So I got to the stage where I had to uh, recognise that, all right, so my parents were right. And then it was reparation time. What am I going to do? And you caught up really quickly in terms of, I guess, what you would call the reparation work. <laughs> and what I'm, what yeah. I'm curious about was what attracted you to that advertisement that you saw uh, uh, for the access course and, and also to legal studies? I, well, legal study, that was the, it, it was the access to legal studies course that I saw. And it, the way they, they sort of, put it out there was that it was a course that was going to be perfect for those who had not been in education for some time. So 
by that stage, I hadn't, you know, been studying for years. And it seemed to me to be the sort of course that would give me those sort of baby steps um, into learning again. Um, so I went for the open day and just was really impressed with the tutors and they made it sound so easy and exciting. Um, access to legal studies, because it just sounded like an interesting topic. Mm. Um, so that's what pulled me in. And then it was only when getting there, because I didn't really think it was going to lead to anything. I thought, well, you know, I, hopefully it would make me more employ um, employable. So I didn't tend to think, oh, it's going to lead me to X, Y or Z. It was just, well, I'll go there and see what happens. It was only when you go there that you, you know, and you're th you're going through the process of of this course that um, they say, well, this this qualification could get you a place in university. And, you know, it was gasp time because I thought, well, you know, I don't even have any, I don't even have it. I had, you know, quite poor GCSEs and no A-levels. And I thought, gosh, this could get me a, a degree. Um, and so once I'd finished the access course or, you know, during the course of the access course, I applied to Cardiff Law School, you know, and, and got in um, and then started my LLB in Cardiff. Yeah, which is quite different from the bright lights of London. No no planet Hollywood there. Ex well, exactly. And, uh, um, you know, my family were just, <laughs> they were just dumbfounded that I, I had managed to turn it around. Yeah, and so quickly as well. And so, and so quickly. But by, by the time I, I got to Cardiff, you know, I was, uh, how old was I when I went to Cardiff? I was probably 20, I was 21 or 22. So I was considered to be a mature student. Um, <laughs> I know that's crazy because yeah. my daughter's 22 and I don't consider her to be a mature student. Yeah. So by the time I got there, you know, I did enjoy university life and probably still by then, even getting into university um, probably didn't take it at that stage as seriously as I should have. So was still, you know, just enjoying life and enjoying university life and not really concentrating as, as much as I should have on my studies. And then, of course, you know, as it says in the Times, there was this holiday romance when I met my daughter's father and then became pregnant. So this is, and I learned I was pregnant in the September of my second year. So just starting my second year. So, you know, the timing was, was not that great. And inevitably, everyone thought, well, okay, well, that's the end of that then. Because, you know, whereas everyone, when I first went to Cardiff was, wow, this is incredible. You know, well done, you've pulled this back you know, you're, you're going to have a law degree. It was, it was all a, very much a sense of, well, you've done your best. Yeah. Time to come home. This is as far as it's going to go. Uh, well done for trying. Yeah. So you, you get pregnant um, and you come back and this is mm. the second year of your, your law degree. Yeah. And what, what happens to the support system that was around you, that was rallying when you went to Cardiff? 
Well, by that stage, I was then, you know, I'd come out of halls. I was in um, a student house with three other lovely girls uh, who remain very good, my very close friends to this day. And um, I think for the first couple of months, I hadn't told them what had happened. And um, I think what I think because I, I in the in the December of that year, I had planned to go on holiday to Australia and I suffered really bad. You know, like a lot of people, I suffered really bad with um, morning sickness. And but it wasn't morning sickness. I think that's a complete misnomer. It was literally all day. All day, most, day sickness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mostly all day and particularly at night sickness. And so it would usually happen uh, the most. It was it was the most aggressive after my evening meal. And um, I would just literally get up and need to go to the toilet. And so my friends were worried that I had an eating disorder and that I was perhaps trying to extreme diet for my holiday oh, no. in Australia. So I, uh, by that stage, I thought, right, I need to, I need to just let them know. And they were very, they were extremely supportive. We lived, you know, at that stage, we lived in a complete dump and we lived like, you know, we just didn't care. And so after they found out, we really sort of made a really good effort to spruce up the place and make my home environment um, a lot nicer for me. And in terms of the actual university, I was given a lot of options as to how I could manage my situation. So there were hardship grants available, which I could use to help pay for nursery fees. I found out that there was a, a nursery on site where my daughter would be able to go between uh, I think, you know, something like 8.30 to 5 o'clock. And I was told by the university that if, I, because my daughter's due date was the 7th of June, and I was told by the university, because that was right in the middle of the exam period. So I was told by the university that if I needed to, I could just come and sit my exams during the resit period, which would be August. So have her in June and then come back and take the exams for the first time. Thanks so much to NECA Akadulu QC for taking the time to speak with me. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to check out the part two of our interview with NECA. And also be sure to listen to the back catalogue of You'll Be Hearing From My Lawyer. My Lawyer.